Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, in person and online. Uh, good to be together. This morning we're looking at the siege of... Um, am I open to the wrong passage? At the siege of uh, Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, but I just want to remind us of why this book was written and who it was written to and for. Um, the book of Kings was written just after the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's just after a siege very like the one that Nikki just read for us in great detail. Uh, long passage. Sorry, Nikki, but thank you. Um, long passage describing the siege of Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. The people who are reading this, and Jeremiah, who tradition tells us wrote this, had just experienced the siege of Jerusalem which was very like this one. Uh, it, um, and they're reading it from the diaspora, which just means that they were spread out. They weren't living in their own land anymore. They were spread out living in Babylon. Jeremiah, it says, tradition tells us, was um, brought down to Egypt. They're reading and writing from different places, but they had witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the, the destruction of Jerusalem included the tearing down of the walls. The Babylonians destroyed the entire city. They tore down the temple so that nothing was left. Um, it was basically an epic changing event in the history of Israel. So the nation of Israel goes from a time of monarchy to after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The Israelis don't own their own land. The Jews aren't the possessors of the land of Israel un again until 1940s after World War II. So we're talking about a huge stretch of time uh, marked by this moment. This moment is as important in the, the life of the Jewish people as, say, the Holocaust in the 20th century. The books that were written at this time, Kings, the prophet Jeremiah was uh, writing, the prophet Ezekiel, Daniel was working at this time, and the, the book of Lamentations, they describe and kind of explore what are the people thinking and feeling and acting, what, what are they doing during this period of time, the book of Lamentations describes how uh, after the fall of Jerusalem, the, the city was devastated. It describes the feelings that the people had. And it's a horrible, like, the stuff that they describe is terrible. The city is desolate. There's nothing there to enjoy. The people have been ruined. Describes cannibalism like we read in, in this story. The nation has become a nation of widows and orphans. They feel completely rejected by God. It's a terrible feeling. And there were a lot of responses to the Babylonian exile. Some of the Jews said, hey, the Babylonian gods must be stronger than our God, Yahweh. So let's just submit to the Babylonian gods. Some of the uh, Israelites just did whatever they could to survive. Others suffered, died, and disappeared. But the writers of Scripture asked the people to reflect. And so they... Uh, Two kinds of reflection. Self-reflection. How did we end up here? What was it that we did that led us into this place? And then also, where was God in all of this? What was he doing? And is he going to act for us in the future? Or is he done with us? So a lot of self-reflection. Which I, I think can be an example to us of how do we respond when things are hard for us? When we go through a pandemic when we're going through political tension and violence like we've experienced, 
When we have financial struggles, relationship difficulties, health problems, mental health issues, personal struggles, in a lot of ways, the pandemic this last year has been a kind of siege on our ways of life that has opened up fault lines in our community. And there are different ways that we we might identify who is the army attacking us and who is us that's inside the city trying to stay, stay safe. Who is the us? could say that it's Christians or America or people of color or displaced people or the concept of truth and freedom, the public square, justice, the common good. You could probably make a case for any of those, and I think you could. But when we're under siege, where do we go? Where do we look for salvation? And the book of Kings is a self-reflective history of the people of Israel, and they're looking out for God. What, God, what are you doing for us? So the passage we're looking at today, which Nikki read for us, is a violent, brutal, terrible passage. But it describes a siege, again, just like the readers had just experienced. So it's a chance for those readers to reflect on their own history and to look out for what God might be up to with them. And again, as, as Nikki's already read it, there are some graphic, violent details in this text, so I just want to warn you and be prepared for that. We'll discuss them. And as we look at the passage together, let's think about the questions, what might this community need to reflect on? What is God up to? And how might God be acting in the future for us? Our passage today says that God is with those who suffer, that he has not abandoned his people under siege, and that salvation just might show up in the most unexpected ways from the most unexpected places, through people who are suffering the most and who are most desperate. So let's pray and jump into this passage together. Lord, we are desperate before you. Without you, we have nothing. We have no way of dealing with our sin, We have no way of overcoming evil, uh, and then we're trapped by death. But with you, Jesus, you have conquered sin and evil and death. And with you, we have hope and life and grace and goodness. So we just thank you this morning. We praise you. And Father, we invite you to do a work in us. May we see what you're up to. Would we know our desperation before you? And would we participate in the salvation that you offer to us? We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Kings describes four sieges. This is the first. And then, so chapter 6 and 7 is the siege where God actually saves the city of Samaria. The second siege happens in chapter 17 where... um, God, uh, the writer Jeremiah, describes how the Assyrians come and actually destroy the city of Samaria. It's wiped out, and the Samarians, the the northern kingdom of Israel, is destroyed forever. It's gone for good. The third siege is when the Assyrians, just finished destroying Samaria, the northern kingdom, come down to the southern kingdom, and they lay siege to Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom. And God saves them miraculously. And then the fourth siege is when the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem. It's described at the end uh, of, the, of the book of Kings, chapter 25. So what, 
I find it interesting. It's just kind of a, a note about the literature. The writer of Kings, Jeremiah, describes in great detail the two sieges where God saves the people. But the two sieges where the city is destroyed and God doesn't preserve the city are written more like a, a news report with bullet points. So the city where the, the destruction, uh, when the Babylonians destroy the city of Jerusalem, it's described, the Babylonians came, they laid siege, the city was destroyed, we all got taken off. I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that Jeremiah describes in more detail the, the stories when the people were saved. He does that for a reason. He does that so that the people reading this might know that even in the very worst circumstances, God will save his people. Even while you're in exile, God wants to save and he will save. He is not done with his people yet. Because that really is the message of this passage and kind of the whole book of the Kings. God can rescue even when we have no hope. God can rescue when all of our resources were gone. When everything we've relied on, from the king, the economy, down to a mother's love for her child, when all of that is gone, God will still act to save. When there's nothing left, God can save us. Okay, so let's look at the details of the text here, starting chapter 6, verse 24. The king of Aram comes and lays siege to Samaria. There's a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods, in my translation, for five shekels. That's all the food that is available. A donkey's head is wildly expensive because they're out of food. And my translation, the NIV, said it was seed pods sold for five, five shekels. The, the Hebrew is actually dove's dung. Bird droppings are selling as food. That's literally what the text says. They are so out of food that they will eat bird droppings. So the king is out inspecting the walls and a woman comes up to him, cries to him, help me, my lord, the king. The, wor the word there is actually save. That's what she says. Save. And the king responds appropriately in some way. There's nothing I can do. I, I have no power to save you. But tell me what it is. She's crying out for justice. But hear the kind of justice that she's crying out for. She's crying out because she has had to eat her child the day before. And the woman that she made a deal with said, okay, we'll eat your child today and then tomorrow we'll eat mine. And the second woman has hidden her child. This woman is crying to the king to make this other woman give up her child so that she can eat and have some food today. 
That's the level of desperation we're talking about. This is the worst of the worst. Mothers are boiling their children in order to eat. By the way, this is a detail that gets picked up in various other places in the Old Testament to describe the siege of the Babylonians against Jerusalem. Lamentations in a couple places talks about the fact that mothers boiled their children. So the readers of this story, the first readers, know exactly what that situation feels like. They experienced this again a couple hundred years later. They know what it feels like to hear women mourning that they have just eaten their own children. That's the awful situation that that they're in. But again, that's the awful situation that the readers of this text experience. They witnessed this kind of thing happen. They had experienced the level of desperation that they're reading about. And again, the king is totally helpless. The situation is desperate. There is no hope unless the Lord acts. None. There is no hope. So as we get into the heads of these first readers, and again, Jeremiah's head as he's writing this, these are people in exile. They were not saved from this scenario. God allowed the destruction that the people in chapter 6 and 7 are saved from. The readers of this text were not saved from that destruction. This would be traumatic for them. Because they know what it's like to hear the wailing of mothers who ate their own children to survive. And they would be crying out, God, where are you? When the Babylonians were camped around Jerusalem. Where were you, God, when they entered the city and destroyed the walls and tore down the temple? Where were you? God, what do you think about this? What are you going to do about it? Where are you when your people are desperate, God? The next section of text tells us where God is. Starting in verse 32. Now Elisha was sitting in this house and the elders were with him. Elisha. The name Elisha, we've talked about this before, but Elisha means my God saves. Where is God? He's in the city with his people. Elisha is the only Israelite named in the text, by the way. The king isn't named. The woman's not named. Nobody else is named. His name, My God Saves, contains the same cry that the woman had cried out to the king. Save! My God saves. The king can't save. God saves. He's the only one who can save. By the way, just an interesting note. We've seen Elisha a lot of times over the last several chapters. He's never in the city of Samaria. He doesn't live in the city of Samaria. He very easily could have left and saved himself from all of this trauma. He didn't have to be in the city. The prophet lived outside the city. He was doing other things. He could have hidden himself easily. In other words, he chose to identify with the people in their suffering. 
he chose to come into the city knowing it would be desperate, that there wouldn't be hope. He chose to come back into this. It reminds me of, um, well, uh, maybe you know the name and the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And he was in America. He came over here to study, and he was worshiping and studying and loved being in America. He was, he was hanging out in Harlem at the time and loved it. But he said, you know what? After this war, after World War II, if I don't go back now, I'm never going to have a voice to help rebuild Germany after Hitler. So he chose to go back. He said, I need to identify with my people if I'm going to have any voice in the future with them. So he chose to go back and he was killed by Hitler. In the same way, of course, Jesus did not need to come back. He did not need to come and identify with us. He had a much better situation at the right hand of the Father. But he chose to identify with sinful humanity. He chose to identify with Israel, with the lowest of the low in Israel, with an oppressed people suffering under the oppression of the Romans. And in his preaching and ministry, he identified and and sat and ate and drank with sinners, prostitutes, drunks, tax collectors, fishermen. He didn't identify with and choose to be with kings and princes. And like Bonhoeffer was, he was killed because he chose to identify with us. The Romans killed and prompted by the religious leadership of Israel. The reality is God is with us in our desperation. God chooses to be with his people when we're desperate. He has not abandoned us. This is the great lesson of kind of all the literature of the time of the exile. Jerusalem was destroyed, but God has not left his people. The, the first chapter of Ezekiel is one of my favorites. Ezekiel's across the river, out in Babylon, and the first thing he sees is God is coming. God is not stuck in a place, in a temple or a city or a region. God is the God of the universe. He's the God of the whole thing. And he can come and make his home with his people no matter where they are. That's Jeremiah's message, Ezekiel's message, and the key message of kings. God has not abandoned us. Like like Elisha here, who the king blames and wants to cut off his head, Jesus is another example of that. Not only does he come and meet with us, he takes the very worst. Jesus takes our shame and sin on himself, takes the punishment for that on himself, and defeats sin and evil in the process. He's not just with us. He's the tip of the spear. He's bearing the brunt of all the damage that we experience. God will not abandon you. There is nothing that you can do that would make him choose to forsake you. Nothing. I know some of us today are coming to Jesus desperate. For some of us, our relationships are so broken that we can't see how to heal them. For some of us, we can't see our way out of financial problems. For some of us, it's health issues or mental illness that has eaten away our joy. 
For some, it's unfair and unjust systems that oppress us. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us have given up dreams. God, where are you when your people are desperate and suffering? Well, the answer is he's with us. If you're coming desperate to Jesus, then his message for you from this passage today is that he will not leave you or forsake you. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. No matter the desperation you find yourself in. Again, the king wants to blame Elisha. He's just desperate and has lost control. And he's like, the one thing I can control is I can have people's heads chopped off. And I'm blaming God, so I'm going to go take out God's messenger. It's obviously the worst idea. Elisha, of course, he's got a word from the Lord, and he can see it coming. (laughs) So he's going to be fine. Um, But Jesus uh, is with us. God is with us in the hurt and in the suffering. The writer of Kings is answering that question, God, where are you? He's saying God is with you. God is with us in our suffering. It's not far, and he will not leave us. And moving on in the passage, he's going to save his people. So I want to read again verses 3 to 10, chapter 7, verses 3 to 10. I just think it's a remarkable, God saves in the most surprising ways. He always does. But this is another example of that. There were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we stay, or if we say, let's go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we die. So they're outside the city gates where lepers are. Lepers aren't allowed in the city. So they're outside the gates and they go, we're going to die if we stay here. We're going to die if we go in there. We're probably going to die if we go over to the Arameans. But it's the only chance for hope. They might decide to have mercy on us and feed us. Only chance for hope. They die, die, or probably die. So going on. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one's there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up, fled in the dusk, and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Okay. (laughs) They heard a sound. The the Hebrew has a great play on words here, which is really interesting. The, The Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim. The Hebrew word for lepers is Mitzorayim. Can you hear the, the Arameans mistook lepers, Mitzoraim, for Egyptians, Mitzraim. They heard a sound and they misinterpreted the sound. It wasn't the Egyptians coming to destroy them. It was four lepers who have nothing. These lepers are the first to discover that the city has been saved. Amazing salvation here. God had already saved the city by the time the lepers reached the camp. 
right? Just like Jesus had ar- has already done the work. He's already saved his people. Whether we discover that he saved us and choose to submit to Jesus or not, he's already done the saving work. We're already saved. It's the good news. Uh, Tyler talked about this in one of our Front Room Theology videos, that the good news is news. It's the announcement of something that's already happened. Jesus has already saved us. And the reality is, these lepers are able to discover this because they're the most desperate people in the city. Or at least they're the most aware of their desperation. God saves his people through the most desperate here. Salvation doesn't come first to those who think they have something to lose. Salvation comes first to those who know their desperation. If we are trying to preserve a way of life like the king is here, if we're trying to hold on to something that we think is important to us or we think ourselves important, then we're going to miss out. Salvation comes first to those who know their desperation. Like Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, those who are desperate. And those who are righteous and powerful come to him and go, why are you eating with these people? Come and eat with us. And Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. The doctor isn't here for the healthy. The doctor's here for the sick. Ian Proven on this text said, it's the humble, in this case the lepers, who are the channels of God's blessing to Israel. Again, Jesus' whole ministry is built like this. Who who hears the announcement first that Jesus is born? It's the shepherds. Who does Jesus hang out with and work with? It's lepers and paralytics and desperate people. Who made up most of the early church? It was slaves and the lower class. Howard Thurman has a powerful little book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And he makes the point that Jesus himself, when he came, came as the disinherited, as the dispossessed. He came as an Israelite. He came as a poor Israelite. As a poor Israelite suffering under Roman oppression. Jesus identifies with, chooses to become the disinherited and the desperate. Salvation comes from the margins. So a question for us, who are we in the story? Do we know our desperation? Do we know how bad it is without Jesus? Or are we still trying to, you know, protect our little kingdoms? Make sure that the walls hold up. We talked in staff this week about who are the desperate now. We gave lots of examples. It could be the homeless, immigrants, people of color, the black church in this country. We could add prisoners, people who struggle with mental health, people with disabilities, victims of abuse, and others on the margin. It certainly seems to me uh, that one of the kind of keys of salvation for us in the church in this country today is that people of color, our brothers and sisters of color, are calling the church to be free of comfort, wealth, and the desire for power. 
and instead inviting us to choose to be free to follow the way of Jesus, who gave up everything, even his life, to serve others and to glorify God. I also want to say it's abundantly clear, if you watch kind of the global church and where the church is moving, where the Spirit's moving, it's in the global south and the global east. God is bringing people to himself all over the world. But where the church is wealthy and powerful, it seems like there's not as much going on. I'd invite us to be people who listen to those on the margins, who identify with people who are desperate and disinherited. Okay, the lepers start feasting, and then they realize, hey, this can't be just for us. We've got to share the good news with the city. Uh, this is the, th- these lepers in the story, maybe you've heard this line, are, these are the beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. It's an old, um, an old line about, th- this is what gospel presentation is. This is what evangelism is. We're just beggars telling other beggars, here's where the food is. For me, that, that is the picture of our evangelism. Like the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9. I don't know anything. All I know is this. I was blind and now I see. Praise God. I'm not here to judge you or your decisions. That's not my job. My job is just to tell you, I found life in Jesus. That's what these these lepers do in our passage today. Going on, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. I skipped something here. Sorry. There we go. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, but we'll get there. Um, in, In staff this week, Jim reminded us of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God didn't choose the wise or the strong. He chose fools and weak in order to shame the wise and the strong. When he chose us, he chose us partly because we know our desperation. There's nothing, we don't have anything. Unless we take a chance on life from a crucified carpenter from Galilee. That's our only chance for life. Without Jesus, we've got nothing. Okay, so God saves the city. He uses desperate lepers as his messengers of salvation. And we'll see that God also is going to fulfill his promises to his people. Praise God. So the word fulfilled. The rest of the story is this. Um, Elisha's made a promise about there being food the next day. So the the lepers announce it. Then the king is skeptical. of this leper's announcement. The king is unsure. He's like, I still got something to protect here, so I'm not sure. So he sends out some troops, and they, f- they come back with the message, yeah, uh, the army, the Aramean army is gone. Uh, there's nobody left. We can come and take their, their goods. So he finally sends people out. Um, there's suddenly enough food that flour and barley become inexpensive. Whereas a donkey's head was super expensive, now flour and barley are cheap. Um, 
The captain, who Elisha promised, would see it but not experience the blessing of salvation. He gets trampled on his way as the people are leaving the city to go get the food. He's trampled. He's trying to make sure that things are orderly. Salvation is just not orderly. It just isn't. God doesn't do things in the way that we think they should happen. And again, as I've said already, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and to all creation. God's word always comes true. Jesus fulfills all of it for us. God promised he would save the world, and Jesus fulfills every version of that promise. He crushes the serpent's head. He brings blessing to all the nations. He's the Lion of Judah who defeats the enemies of God's people. He's the Son of David who will have an eternal throne. He's the suffering servant from Isaiah's vision who heals us by his stripes. He's the Son of Man from Daniel's vision who crushes the empires of the world and establishes a worldwide kingdom of peace and grace and love. Jesus is the Word made flesh. God's Word come to us. God Himself dwelling with us. Light overcoming darkness. Life defeating death. Jesus is God's Word fulfilled. All of God's promises are true to us in Jesus. Praise God. And just a reminder... You already know this, but there's a bunch of things that God never promised to us. God never promised to Israel, for example, that their kingdom would last forever. He never made that promise. And as a side note, he never made that promise to us as Americans either. God never promised that all people would be treated justly by the nations. God never promised that our culture or way of life would stick around. In fact, the pattern of Scripture is that all cultures and all nations and all ways of life are like grass that wither and are blown away. God never promised He would protect us from sieges or pandemics or bad leaders or bad ideas. Instead, God promised He would always be near His people, that He would enable us to endure in suffering, that he would work out his purposes in the midst of our suffering. That he will defeat all enemies in the end. And that Jesus will return to set everything right. He will fulfill all of that in Jesus. Jesus has defeated sin and death. He has established a new community of love and grace. He empowers that community by his spirit. He dwells with us in our suffering. He calls and enables us to live lives of love and grace and peace and justice in a sinful and unjust world. So when you and I are experiencing suffering, experiencing hard times, as we have over the last year, God is with us in our suffering. He's not abandoned us even when things look like they're at their absolute worst. God is near to us. He even brings salvation to and through those who are outcast, marginalized, and oppressed. Jesus comes to us in the least of these sisters and brothers of his. He's constantly coming to us. He's fulfilling his word to the world. Salvation is coming. The dead will rise again, and all things will be set right in Jesus. We started uh, this passage by looking at a mother 
who was forced to give up her child. I want to end by looking at another mother who also gave up her child. And her words, looking at Jesus, at the salvation that God was accomplishing in and through her and her son. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. God's word comes true, even in desperate situations. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you that you are with us no matter how desperate our situation is. You are with us. You care for us. You join us in our suffering. And Jesus, you have overcome all enemies, all evil. And we praise you that even though we suffer, we suffer with hope and with the knowledge that you are setting all things right. So come with us. Continue to shape and change us. Grow us up so that we might know that you are with us and we might continue to live uh, with blessing to those around us, like lepers, just beggars, showing others where we found the food. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.